Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. I'm quite sure that all of you would agree that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most significant event in history. But it's also one of the great foundation stones of the Christian faith. I mean, the resurrection is the essential truth apart from which there is no Christianity. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. We are despicable liars. Our faith is vain. We are still in our sins. Dead Christians have perished, there is no hope beyond the grave, and we are to be pitied more than all men. So thank God that Christ is raised from the dead. I mean, the resurrection is the central fact of our faith. If you disprove it, there is absolutely nothing left. And so the resurrection is not merely a feature of Christianity, it is absolute essential Truth. Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. And in practical importance, it is second only to the crucifixion, which is why all four Gospels record Christ's death, burial, and his resurrection. And this morning, we're going to be turning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, to look at Luke's account of the resurrection of our Lord. So if you'll take your Bibles, stand, and turn to Luke, chapter 24. Luke, chapter 24. Verses 1 through 12 is our text for the morning. So Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, if you'll follow along now as I read, beginning in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what it happened. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. As we look back at the events of the first Easter, we do so from the perspective of the Gospels. 
We have the full account of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We know the rest of the story. We know Jesus' death was not the end, that he rose from the dead just as he said. We know that his once-for-all sacrifice for sins was finished, and that three days later he rose victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And so when we look at the cross, we see not only the agony, we also see the glory of the cross. But remember, it wasn't like that for the disciples and the other followers of Jesus on that first Easter Sunday. In fact, for them, it was all darkness. It was gloom. The few followers of Jesus who were gathered around the cross on Friday didn't see anything that even remotely resembled victory. And all they saw was death and defeat as Jesus dismissed his spirit and died, then his body slumping on that bloody cross. And their dreams were shattered. Their world was shattered. Their hopes and dreams had all come to an end as the one they had followed and loved so deeply died a horrible death. And so deep was their anguish and despair that no one had even the slightest thought of a resurrection, did not even enter their mind. So it wasn't Good Friday for them. It was a dark Friday. They were in a state of shock and bewilderment without a glimmer of hope. And the only light that shone on that dark day was the light of love and devotion in the lives of Jesus' followers, such as Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and the women who followed him from Galilee. Luke tells us on Friday evening, sometime before 6 p.m., which marked the beginning of the new day and the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus buried the body of Jesus in a nearby garden in a new tomb which Joseph had prepared for himself. And after anointing Jesus' body with spices and wrapping it in fine linen, they laid it in the tomb and a stone was rolled in front of the entrance and they left, going home, no doubt, to mourn. Joseph had no hope. But at least he had been able to show his love for Jesus by caring for his body and providing a tomb, a burial place. Some of the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how Jesus' body was laid to rest. And they too left and returned to where they were staying, planning to return as soon as the sun rose the morning after the Sabbath. But like Joseph of Arimathea, they they had no hope. Jesus was dead and buried in a borrowed tomb, and all they could hope to do now was to honor his body. And while the women were planning to visit the tomb to anoint Jesus' dead body, the Jewish leaders, on the other hand, were concerned with protecting the body. Matthew's gospel tells us that on Saturday the Jewish leaders began to get worried because they remembered that Jesus had said that he would rise on the third day after being killed. And so they went to Pilate asking for guards who would ensure Jesus' disciples couldn't sneak back to the tomb, steal the body, and then claim he had risen. And so Pilate gave them a group of soldiers who sealed the stone and and set a guard. And that's the the scene at the end of Luke chapter 23. And it's it's a depressing scene. And it would be horrible if that's the way the story ended. But it doesn't end there. And let's look now at verses 1 to 3 of Luke chapter 24, uh, where we read of the empty tomb. Notice verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. 
And so on the first day of the week, or on Sunday morning following the Sabbath, at the crack of dawn, the women headed out for the tomb with the spices that they had prepared. And these were the women who had faithfully followed Jesus, quite possibly all three years of his public ministry. They were among the women who ministered to him in Galilee, who had stood with him at the cross when his own disciples had abandoned him, and now they made their way to the tomb to anoint his lifeless body. And although Joseph and Nicodemus had already lavished 75 to 100 pounds of spices upon the Lord's body, these women too bought spices to add to the abundant amount already provided. And the fact that they came to anoint Jesus' body on the third day after his burial showed that, like the disciples, they were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. And he was the hope of their hearts, but now he was gone, their their lives filled with, with bitter disappointment. But in the midst of all of that wreckage and ruin, one thing remained unshaken, and that was their love for Jesus. Faith had gone They didn't have confidence in the resurrection. Hope had gone. But their love endured. What they lacked in faith, they made up for in love. And even though Jesus was dead, they were determined to show their love for him one last time. And so they came to the tomb that morning only to anoint his dead body. Now on the way to the tomb, Mark in his gospel tells us they were fretting over how they were going to get into the tomb because of the stone. I mean, the last thing they ever expected was to find uh, was to find an empty grave. I mean, all they expected to find that first Easter Sunday was the lifeless body of Jesus, which they planned to anoint. And the women probably had no idea the tomb had been sealed with an official Roman seal not to be broken, and that a Roman guard had been placed in front. However, when they arrived, we read in verse 2, notice, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Well, imagine their surprise. They found the stone had been rolled away, and not only was the stone rolled away, the soldiers who had been posted at the tomb were nowhere to be found. Well, where did they go? Well, Matthew informs us. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 2 to 4, we read, There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Like dead men. And the earthquake must have only affected the area, the immediate area around the tomb, since the women apparently didn't feel it as they were making their way to that location. And apparently the combination of the earthquake and the angel who descended caused the soldiers to lose consciousness or perhaps they were even knocked out. We don't know. But they became, as, as Matthew said, like dead men. But as soon as they regained consciousness, they would have seen the stone had been rolled away. And obviously when they went into the investigate, they discovered the body of Jesus was gone. That meant they had failed in their duty and they fully understood the terrible implications of that. That meant death for a Roman soldier. And they also knew something powerful and supernatural had happened because they had seen a blazing angel at the same time of the massive earthquake when the stone was rolled away. And so they fled. And some reported what had happened to the Jewish leaders who initiated then a cover-up. 
Sounds all too familiar, doesn't it? Matthew tells us, they, the, Jew, uh, the soldiers gave us, or the, I'm sorry, they, the Jewish leaders, gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they, the soldiers, took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. All of that to say, the soldiers were gone by the time the women arrived at the tomb. No one was there, and they saw the very large stone had been rolled away. And of course, as you know, the angel moved the stone not to let Jesus out, but to let the women in and to let the world in to see that Jesus was not there, that he had indeed risen from the dead. And so with no stone or soldiers to hinder them, the women went inside the tomb. And look what Luke tells us in verse 3. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So they went into the tomb, but the body of the Lord Jesus was not there. And so the inspired, the divinely inspired testimony of Luke is that the stone is rolled away, the women go in and there's no body, the tomb is empty, They were eyewitnesses to the reality of the empty tomb. Well, of course, now they were even more bewildered and confused. And they certainly didn't conclude that Jesus had risen. And they were wondering why Jesus wasn't there. And we can only imagine the thoughts that were running through their minds. No doubt the same thoughts You would have if you went to take flowers to the grave of a loved one, and when you arrived, you discovered that where they used to be buried was now an empty grave. Now, if that happened, would you think that the deceased had risen from the dead? Would you? Well, no. No, you wouldn't. I wouldn't. Neither did they. And these women were surely beginning to panic a bit as their minds raced through all the possible explanations of why the body was missing. And apparently they thought the body of Jesus had been stolen. That's what John tells us Mary Magdalene thought, which is a reasonable conclusion because dead people don't get up and walk out of a tomb. They have to be taken out. And so the tomb is empty. The soldiers know it's empty. That's why they left. If the body was still there, they would still be guarding it. The women know it's empty. I mean, they're they're, they're standing in it and the body's not there. And some have said that, well, they, you know, they went to the wrong tomb. Well, no, they didn't go to the wrong tomb. They knew the right tomb to go to because they had been there on Friday night. They knew the tomb. And the Jews knew the tomb because it was the tomb which they had sealed and guarded by the Romans, and the tomb was empty. (laughs) And we know from John's gospel that the grave clothes were just as they were when Jesus was laid in the tomb, except for the fact that the cloth which had covered his face was now folded and off to one side. So the grave clothes are there, looking probably something like a, a collapsed cocoon. The face cloth is there folded. But where is the body? The body's not there. Who had taken it? And what have they done with it? We can only imagine the shock and the added heartache and grief this caused these ladies. 
Well, fortunately, providentially, they get a little heavenly assistance in dealing with their confusion. In verses 4 to 7, we see the angelic messengers. Look at verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. So as they're standing there perplexed about all of this, we're told two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, or it could be translated shining garments, or the NIV translates it clothes that gleamed like lightning. Well, obviously they're angels. In fact, John describes them as two angels. And there's no reason to assume that any of these women had ever seen an angel except for Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so here they are, And the two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And Mark describes one of them as a young man. And Luke tells us now in verse 5, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. Well, certainly they did. The women were quite naturally afraid. In fact, they're, they're terrified. So much so that they bowed down until their faces were on the ground. I mean, they got as low as they possibly could out of fear and great reverence. And while they were bowed down, one of the angels voiced that immortal, gentle rebuke. The men said to them in verse 5, Why do you seek the living among the dead? You know, why are you coming here to anoint a dead Jesus? Why are you looking for a living person among dead people? And the question makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, in the first place, I mean, it is the first place you look for a living person in a tomb or in a cemetery. Well, no, it isn't. Why do you seek the living among the dead? It was actually a counseling question. It's a a rhetorical question. It wasn't looking for information. Rather, it was trying to push them. It was trying to show them their error. It was trying to show them they were confused as to who Jesus really was and what he had really come to do. It was also a rebuke. But it was a glorious rebuke. It was joyful. It was a loving, gentle rebuke. If you're looking for Jesus in the grave, you've got it all wrong. You're you're looking in the wrong place. The angels wanted the women to see that Jesus was not dead, but he was alive and well. But that wasn't at all what the women expected. It just just didn't compute. They had seen Jesus' dead body. They weren't seeking a living person. They were looking for a dead one. But Jesus was no longer to be found in the tomb among the dead. His tomb was empty. He had only borrowed that tomb for three days, and now he had no further use for it. Which is why the angel said to the women, Why do you seek the living among the dead? And of course, that set the stage for the first proclamation of the Easter message. Now the angel takes a more direct approach. Look what he said to the women in verse 6. He is not here, but has risen. And those words have thundered down through the ages. He is not here, he is risen, or more accurately it, it says, he has been raised. I mean, Jesus is to be found among the living. He's risen. We, we love and serve and worship a living Savior. And you could say amen right there if you'd like. 
I mean, this is the first announcement of the resurrection of Christ in the New Testament. And it was proclaimed not by men, but rather by angels, the messengers of God. And that means what we have right here is divine revelation. This is divine revelation. Angels came down from God in heaven with the truth and declared to these women that Jesus had been raised. He's not here. The tomb is empty. And so now we have the emptiness of the tomb and the message of the angels to verify the resurrection. This means you have evidence for the resurrection from the facts, the empty tomb, and then from divine revelation, the angel's message. So this is very, very powerful evidence. The tomb was empty. The body of the Lord Jesus was not there because, as the angel said, he has risen. And this is the only possible explanation for the empty tomb. And it's the testimony of God's holy messengers. It is inerrant, it is authoritative, it is refutable, and it is a fulfillment of the promise. Now, just put yourself in the place of these women. Can you imagine how shocked they were to hear this? I mean, no doubt they were absolutely stunned. I mean, put yourself in their place. They weren't expecting to see an empty tomb. They were expecting to find, uh, on that first Easter Sunday, all they were expecting to find was the lifeless body of Jesus. And they were going to anoint it and mourn. They didn't expect anything except more sorrow. But instead of a sealed tomb and a dead body, they find an open, empty tomb and angels with this incredible message for them that Jesus wasn't there, but he had risen. See, the resurrection is a historical event. It happened. It was the most inevitable event in human history because as Peter told the crowd at Pentecost, it was not possible for him, for Jesus, to be held by death. And make no mistake about it. Jesus' death was no illusion. Jesus died, but on the third day he was raised because it was not possible that death could keep hold of him because of who Jesus is. And the death Jesus died, he died not for his own sins. The death he died, he died in the place of sinful men and women like you and I. He had come into the world to be the great sin-bearer of his people's sin. Jesus stood before God as the substitute, and God condemned his Son in the place of sinful man, and he died, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. He died for sin, not his own, and when he paid the price and the penalty of sin was paid, God raised him triumphantly because sin and Satan had no claim on him, and again, death could not hold him. And in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus said, I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And so loved ones, that means as, as we gather together this morning and we are gathering in the presence of a risen Lord. We're not looking back to a dead Jesus. We're not here to remember a dead, long gone Jesus, but the glory in the presence of God and in the presence of the risen, living Christ. And that same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you and I, enabling us to live the Christian life. Yeah. He's not here, but he's risen, the angel said. Well, I think these poor women were all but traumatized by this. But on the other hand, they should not have been surprised 
Because it's exactly what Jesus had said was going to happen. That is why the angel said to them in the rest of verse 6 and in verse 7, notice. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? The angel challenged the women to remember the words of Jesus. Remember what he had spoken to them in Galilee. I mean, these were the women who followed him from Galilee. They heard him teach there. And he had plainly told his followers over and over and over again that he must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and be raised again on the third day. It started all the way back while he was still in Galilee. Well, here it is, Sunday morning, the first day of the week, the third day since Jesus died, and guess what? He did exactly what he said he would do. He rose, for, he rose on the third day. But none of his followers ever really understood it when he told them that he would rise from the dead. And we like to think that if we would have been there, we would have understood, but no, we wouldn't. Because we're just like them. None of Jesus' followers ever really understood when he told them he would rise from the dead. Because if they would have, these women would never have bought spice, brought spices on the third day to anoint his corpse. And so the angel exhorts the women, remember how he told you. Now remember Jesus' words. That's the important thing. Jesus' words, the word of God. The angels are basically saying, you're not going to be able to understand these events apart from Jesus' words. You know, the way for you to, to understand the resurrection is to go back to Jesus' words and remember them. And, and loved ones, this is true for the whole of the Christian life. We don't understand life apart from the Word of God. And we don't read the Word of God through the light of our life. Rather, we read our lives through the light of God's Word. God's word interprets the events, the situations, and the circumstances of our lives, not the other way around. I mean, if, just think of this. If we allowed the events of our lives to dictate what we thought about God, I mean, that would make for a very interesting and a very wrong systematic theology. It is the word of God that frames our understanding of things. It is the Word of God that makes sense of everything. And that's vital. That's, that's vital in the Christian life. I mean, the gospel, Jesus' sin atoning death, burial, his resurrection, is only understood in the light of the Word of God. The way we live the Christian life, the way we grow in grace, is by believing, knowing, and obeying the Word of God. And so this means we're to be people of the whole book. We're to devour the Word of God, Old Testament and New. We're to fill our hearts and minds with the Word of God, all of it. Continually fill our hearts and minds with the Word. Meditate upon it. Uh, memorize it. Sit under the preaching of it. And so the angel is saying to these women, if you're going to respond to the resurrection the right way, the way to begin is by remembering Jesus' words because Jesus' words, God's words, are life-giving and they are faith-producing. Remember, the angel said, how he told you. And look at verse 8. Luke tells us, and they remembered his words. The women responded to the angel's exhortation. 
The angels brought them a revelation they couldn't deny. They, they heard the message from God and, and they remembered the connection with what Jesus promised. And so, not only, so it was not only dawn on the outside, but it was dawn on the inside. They began to put the pieces back together. The light began to come in. It began, it began to make sense to them. And they remembered his words. And everything they did in the rest of this passage has all the marks of true faith. And in verses 9 and 10, we see the witness of the women. After hearing the angel's message, the first thing these ladies do is take off. And Mark tells us, the angel said to the women, go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they immediately obeyed the angel's command. Because Mark tells us in the next verse, Mark 16, 8, and they went out and fled from the tomb. Well, of course they did. They fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. So the angel said, go, and man, they took off. They took off from the tomb because they were both trembling and astonished to go tell the disciples and Peter that the message from the angel is that Jesus is alive. And when Mark says they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid, their silence refers to their behavior as they ran toward Jerusalem. In other words, they didn't stop to speak to anyone along the way. They ran as fast as they possibly could because the verse says they were afraid. And there was an element of of fear in their hearts. And certainly the whole experience was enough to shake anybody up. And so they were afraid. But Matthew tells us they went with fear and great joy. And they ran to report it to his disciples. I mean, so their fear was, was tempered with joy because they knew in their hearts and their minds that Jesus had risen from the dead. But they still hadn't seen the risen Lord. There was the empty tomb, the the angels with this incredibly amazing message, but, but no risen Savior. But that was all going to change. Because as they ran to report this to the disciples, somewhere along the way, somewhere en route, Matthew tells us, and behold, Jesus met them. Imagine that. Jesus met them and said, greetings. He's like, really? (laughs) Greetings? And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. I just love this this passage. I mean, Jesus met them and said, greetings. It's, It's something like, good morning, ladies. I mean, I find that almost comical. And how did they respond? They came up and took hold of his feet. In other words, they fell on the ground before him and they worshipped him. They worshipped him. And can you imagine the relief and the joy that overflowed their hearts? Here was Jesus. They had seen the empty tomb. They had heard the angel's divine revelation and now they had seen their risen Savior. And then off they went as fast as they could go to find the disciples to give them the news that that Jesus is alive. You know, it's important that we note that 
in the Bible, if anything is to be given as a testimony, it has to be confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses, two or three witnesses with firsthand, you know, eyewitness knowledge. We don't have any of the disciples who saw Jesus die except John. We don't have any of the disciples who saw him buried, which was a confirmation of his death. None of the disciples could give testimony to the actual death, burial, and resurrection. They couldn't give testimony to all three. But these women were eyewitnesses of everything. They had seen it all. They saw Jesus die. They knew he was dead because the Romans didn't break his legs. They knew he was dead because the spear went into his side and out came the blood and the water. They knew he was dead because they watched his body be prepared for burial, wrapped in linen and spices, and then laid in the tomb. And now they know he's alive because they've seen him. All of these women could give credible eyewitness testimony of all of it. All of it. So what we have here is multiple eyewitnesses. And of course, this is just the beginning. Jesus would appear to many others as well, but this little group of women were the first to see the risen Christ. They had seen it all. And this is very, very significant. And I say that because the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection were women. You say, well, that doesn't seem so significant. And it isn't significant to us living in the 21st century. But in first century Israel, This was highly significant and profoundly unusual. You see, in that society, women were treated as second-class citizens. And as eyewitnesses, they had no standing whatsoever. And yet here they are. They are everywhere in this narrative. And this very fact indicates the historical authenticity of the resurrection account because no one, absolutely no one, who wanted to fabricate a convincing account of the resurrection in first century Israel would have done this. Never. The women would have been nowhere and the men would have been everywhere. But here, it's the exact opposite. You see, to God, this group of women... Uh, They they were far from being second-class citizens who were not worthy of being witnesses. Now, these women were given this unusual prominence because they mattered. In Christ, they had been elevated because we are all one in Christ Jesus. And so it's very significant that the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection were the women who had stood by him when the men all fled out of fear. It's like, way to go, guys. Their loyalty and devotion to Jesus was uniquely honored by their being the first to receive the message of the resurrection. And back in Luke, we read in verse 9, And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And Luke tells us the names of some of the women in this group. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. I mean, I can almost picture them in my mind arriving back at the place where the disciples and all the rest had gathered and were basically hiding out because they were afraid. I mean, anyway, after sprinting the whole way back from the tomb, they arrive, no doubt out of breath, And they begin trying to tell the disciples and all the rest about the empty tomb and the risen Savior. 
But in verses 11 and 12, we see the unbelieving disciples. When they told the apostles and the others in verse 11, look, look, what, look, at the, look what happened. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. I mean, the apostles, the spiritual giants that they were, didn't believe the women. Their words, the words of the women seemed to to the disciples to be an idle tale, and literally that word means nonsense or empty talk. And that Greek word was used to refer to the delirious stories told by the very sick or to tales told by those who failed to perceive reality. So the disciples thought that the women, uh, what they had to say was just female hysteria. It was just silly talk, absolute nonsense. And they didn't believe them. It didn't matter that their story was consistent. It didn't matter that they gave details that had no other explanation. The disciples thought it was just a bunch of hype. And and though Jesus had explicitly told them on many occasions about his death and resurrection, they didn't believe it. And the women could not convince them. And so the disciples just blew them off. But the women persisted in their belief in what they had been told and what they had seen. And it's important to note also the fact that the men who should have believed were at first skeptics of these women who testified of Jesus' resurrection is powerful evidence for the resurrection. Because if someone had invented this story, they would not have made the disciples of Jesus look skeptical and unbelieving. If the disciples had been hoping for the resurrection, I mean, perhaps they could be accused of being gullible and ready to believe anything, but they ridiculed these women as being out of touch with reality. Well, what could have changed these men into bold witnesses? What could have changed them into spiritual dynamos willing to suffer persecution and even death? One answer, the fact that they saw the risen Lord Jesus, which they had not as of yet. Luke now adds a note about Peter. Even though the disciples dismissed the women's story, it is to Peter's credit that he went to check it out for himself. But when you read it's Peter, it's like, well, of course he did. I mean, that's just what Peter would do. Verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. He went home marveling at what had happened. Now this is a flashback because Peter had actually gone to the tomb a little earlier before the testimony of the women. The chronology of this is is more clear in the Gospel of John. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And we read there in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So in that early morning darkness, Mary Magdalene and the other women we've been reading about began to make their way to the tomb. But apparently, uh, Mary went on ahead of the others. 
You know, the women may have been coming from different locations, starting together, and and either they got separated or Mary just walked much faster and and went on ahead and arrived uh, much earlier than they did. But whatever the case may have been, Mary Magdalene is first to arrive at the tomb where the others would arrive behind her. And when she arrived, she saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb, but Mary didn't wait around to investigate any further. And she apparently didn't look into the tomb at this time. Rather, she feared the worst. She saw the stone was gone, feared the worst. She immediately concluded Jesus' body must have been stolen. And her first thought was to go tell Peter and John of this ultimate indignity. So Mary leaves the other women at the tomb. And verse 2 tells us, She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And so Peter and the other disciple, and that's how John refers to himself, Peter and John leave after hearing from Mary Magdalene to go to the tomb. And they're running, and they're, they're going to verify Mary Magdalene's story that somebody stole the body. And John reached the tomb first, verse 5, and stooping to look in, He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. You know, he saw the empty tomb and the grave clothes, and that was all it took for John, and he believed, meaning he believed that Christ had risen from the dead. He believed it at that moment. Verse 9, For as yet, or up to that time, they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead, but, but John understood it then. And then the disciples, were told, went back to their homes. Peter saw the empty tomb, but it didn't lead him to believe. Instead of believing, he went away marveling or or wondering at what had happened. So Peter and John went away again to their homes, and that's interesting, I think. I mean, they didn't know, you know, it's like, well, what do we do next? They didn't know, so they just went home. That's what Luke says Peter did in verse 12. He went home marveling at what had happened. John believed. But Peter is still struggling when he goes home. But before the day is over, Jesus will appear to Peter privately in just the two of them. And we don't know from Scripture anything about it other than the fact that Jesus appeared to Peter. And no doubt, there is no doubt whatsoever, it was a very special time, a very emotional time. And I'm sure there was much weeping and forgiveness and restoration and great joy. And Jesus then appeared to all the disciples minus Thomas as they were together on that first resurrection evening. So the women in this passage were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. They saw the stone rolled away, the empty tomb, the angels, the grave clothes, and then they saw and touched the risen Lord. And this was not a figment of their imagination. They held him by the feet, he was alive, and and their hearts were filled with a new and a living hope. 
And so it was quite a Sunday for a group of women who saw their Lord crucified and dead on Friday afternoon, only to find out three days later he had in fact risen. The disciples didn't believe them. The women could not convince them. But that didn't change the fact that Jesus was alive as they would soon come to know. So the resurrection is one of the great turning points of all time. Jesus is crucified, buried in a tomb, only to rise again on the third day. And once more, it is a historical fact, a historical event. And if I'm doing my job as pastor of this church, then the resurrection story should be familiar to you. I mean, you should know the basic facts of what happened. But my purpose this morning is not simply to call you to remember the facts of the account. Because we're called to consider the impact of those facts on the way in which we live. Jesus is alive. And that has huge implications. You say, well, what does it mean? Well, it means that you and I can have a real relationship with God. It means that all of our sins have been paid for. It means that life is actually heading towards something rather than just being random. It means we have one we can follow, trust, and look to for guidance and direction. It also means we should stop playing around in our discipleship and follow him with energy and devotion. I mean, it seems obvious But following, by definition, requires more than passivity and mere mental assent. It actually requires us to do something. You know, significant events change us. Some things impact us negatively and and, and make us more cautious in life, but the resurrection of Jesus should impact us in a different way. It should actually energize us and excite us. It should cause us to worship, serve, and to live with an unquenchable joy. It should motivate us to know Him and to grow in our relationship with Him, to become like Him and to be useful to Him. And it should do this not just on Easter Sunday, but every single day of our lives. So you can leave here this morning thinking, wow. You know, the resurrection is a historical event. Or, you can leave here this morning worshiping God and rejoicing and knowing that Christ has been raised from the grave, conquering sin, death, and hell, and He is a mighty Savior whom God has exalted to His right hand, and one day before Him every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mean, Jesus was crucified, but now is risen. I mean, and this is the Lord with whom we have a personal relationship in whose presence we are to be filled with awe and wonder and worship. Christ is the risen Lord. So my question to you this morning is, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and was buried and rose again the third day? You know, do you believe that you've sinned against a holy God and violated his law and that the wages of sin is death, but that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ? 
Listen, the only hope for someone's sins to be forgiven, the only hope for eternal life in heaven is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the the basis of the gospel and the foundation which our salvation rests upon. Christ is risen from the dead. And so there is hope beyond the grave. And I pray, I pray, as many others pray, that you'll make certain today that you will die in hope by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Place your faith and trust in the risen Christ today. Do it today. Let's stand and pray. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.